0: Rondings Fam, Ron Rapatalo here. We have Brandon White, who I know from my education world and particularly from the world of Unbound Ed, where we have a lot of overlap between many, 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 many people that we love. So we've chopped it up on this episode. Doesn't start immediately with uh, his story, but we start talking about the in-season tournament in the NBA, which was going on at the time of the recording of the episode, the evolution of the game of basketball and the impact of growing up in Rochester. We also talk about the influence of Brandon's parents, who were also involved in social justice very deeply in his hometown, and the privileges and opportunities he had attending a magnet school. Then we end the conversation about falling in love with the music that we love, hip-hop. So check out this episode. It's incredible. And we are sponsored by Leverage Publishing Group. We ghostwrite, edit, and publish first-time authors, Peace. Rondering's Universe. Man, I've been waiting a second to have my homeboy, friend from the Unbound Ed world, Brandon White on the mic. What's going on, Brandon?
1: Nothing much, man. Thank you for being on the LP. I love talking about leverage.
0: Great book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting that plug out because uh, I probably don't do enough plugs as the host, but to say it about me. Yeah, and um, it is, it isn't, but it right, is. Right? <laughs> it is, right? You know what I'm indeed, saying? Indeed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love you. It's on Amazon, folks. You want to check it out. Leverage the people, love and care about you personally, professionally, building a circle of champions, about the seven archetypes of people you need in your career journey. There mm. was my mini commercial, Brandon. Thank you for giving me the alley-oop there and for me to for slam sure. it down like Giannis. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about the uh, in-season tournament, by the way?
0: Ooh. Right, see, this is how we're going to chop it up. Right. Um, <laughs> I read way too much of The Athletic. And the ringer. So, I have a little bit of an informed Mm. opinion from reading those analyses. And I did watch what I thought was a pretty cool, like, championship game between the Lakers and the Pacers Saturday night. So, I think anything, anytime you put a competition in front of naturally competitive people, folks are going to fight harder. I understand that as someone who, Aspires to be an elite athlete. I'm nowhere close to that, to be clear. Right. But mm. I understand what being competitive is like. Yeah. Because if you give some kind of competitive thing in me and everyone else is doing it within the community that I'm at, I'm disproportionately going to do it because I like to win. Yeah. And so what I thought IST did really well was to create urgency so early the season. Mm. Like, when's the last time you got excited about a December basketball game? I'll yeah. wait for an answer. That's not Christmas.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Never,
0: yeah. right? Yeah. And so I like the urgency that got built and seeing someone like Tyrese Halliburton show. If y'all have been watching these Pacers, that kid is nice. He's
1: been kicking up dust.
0: Yeah. yeah, nice. And look, I know for you know cynical fans of the NBA and big markets like Los Angeles, is like. Course the Lakers would win, it's LeBron and blah blah blah. But the thing that I respect about a LeBron James, and I aspire to be, if I can sniff anywhere near his genius, I will have done well mm. in life, to be clear.
1: Yeah.
0: But when he said for the moment, he set the tone, because look, he's also an ambassador. he's the ambassador for the NBA. Mm-hmm. It is not the commissioner of the NBA, it's not he is the standard bearer. That's so the right. fact that he in his 20 plus years said, I'm gonna take this tournament seriously and I'm gonna raise my level and this team's level even early in the season, I thought was genius. I think if he didn't raise that level for the team, maybe other teams would have raised their level on their own. But I think the fact that LeBron raised that level and people like watch him in the NBA, although because you know, everybody competitive, but like folks will look and be like, he may not be the player he was 10 years ago, but he still he 38 yeah. and he doing what? It so makes what? it makes yeah. zero sense. Yeah. right? And so for the IST created excitement for me. And like, I'm really excited yeah. about what this will do for future seasons. And the fact that, you know, the NBA wants to expand. It wants yeah. to go even more global. Maybe there'll be a team in Mexico, right? There'll be like, I yeah. just think, or, or they're going to play in other places that are special, right? It's just, it's really smart branding. And I think the NBA compared to the other sports major league American sports have always been a step ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm not gonna lie, Ron. I, I was more on the cynical side of it. But I've yeah. been speaking to a lot of people who are more on the optimistic side of it. Yeah. And, you know, like it's starting to soften me up a bit and making oh, yeah. me think and reflect mm. a bit about my own, I guess, limited lenses. Cause one, I'm just reintegrating myself into paying close attention to basketball. 'cause, mm, okay. um <laughs> mm. like the Knicks depressed me out of the basketball like you know twenty Ooh. years ago, and and I finally emotionally started getting over it, and you know like so that there was that, and also like it was around the time where I was realizing I was trash too, <laughs> so I realized my favorite <laughs> team was trash, and I was realizing that um I was trash, and I think I also resented the fact that I was expected to be good as a black person, a black male in particular. So, mm. like all those things, it was just like, you know what? I'm gonna stop paying attention like that. Mm. But then I, over time, I was like, you know what? My team isn't good. I'm not good. But what, like, does that really matter? Can't you just enjoy something that you like without necessarily being bitter or upset about your favorite team, you know, not being great or being bitter or upset about society's expectations about your relationship with that sport? Like, like yeah. get the kofi off your head, bro. Like, <laughs> 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 Watch these Knicks lose real quick, <laughs> um, and so like, but like, yeah. in rewatching it, like, I saw, I saw the, 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 the motivation around like trying to get these newer players to like play harder and be in competition. I kind of thought like, you need to have a whole tournament to like motivate, but like, if that's the case, then that's the case, right? Like, it's yeah. it's smart, it's engaging, um, and to your point, it can create more opportunities for the NBA to a- expand, right? And, yeah. and so I've gotten incrementally less grouchy uh, being honest yeah. about, you know, my own limited lenses and
0: biases yeah. about it. Man, I got to say, I appreciate two things from your riff right there. Is One, yeah. our love-hate relationship with the Knicks as a yeah. uh, native New Yorker watching the Knicks in the 90s, but even the 80s, yeah. the Bernard King era, yeah. right? But also watching when... Patrick Ewing in the infamous lottery. No, there was no cold envelope, folks. Right? Yeah. No cold envelope. It got picked out because the Knicks were destined to get Patrick Ewing, right? Right. Patrick Ewing, right? right? But then watching those Knicks be great in the 90s and yet be so close, yet so far up 2-0 on the Michael Jordan Bulls, the John Sparks dunk, but yet in game five, Charles Smith getting rejected. Fifty-five times in two seconds. Am I remembering yes. that right? I know I, I, I'm totally exaggerating, but you, like, I still I um, do a yeah. really crazy, hilarious, ridiculous Charles Smith impression, <laughs> getting rejected every time. No disrespect, Charles. That's Smith.
1: the first time like, I've heard that.
0: <laughs> look, I, I, th- I maybe he was trying to dunk. I don't know, right? Yeah, but like yeah. the fact that I perceive he was trying to lay it up. And yeah. like, look, he had three of the greatest defensive players in the NBA in the '90s rejecting him between yeah, Michael yeah. Jordan, Horace Grant, and Scottie Pippen. Like, if those three under the basket, I was goal, I was like, let me pass it out for three. <laughs> Somebody, yeah. I would not have been like trying to go apart. But and then the '90, you know, the Knicks playing against the Rockets, man, that game seven, three for twenty by Starks. Why didn't Pat yeah. Riley take him out? You know, like these are things that sit with me where I'm just like, so close yet so far. And even the '99 Knicks. Yeah, there was free will then, right? right? Yeah. And but Pat getting hurt because yeah. then we went up against the Spurs Twin Towers and we were just and we couldn't yeah. hang with the Spurs. Yeah. Like by the time we got there, it was like it was just gravy to be in the finals. Like we ain't right. winning without Pat. There's no way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think we would have won even with Pat, but it would have been right. more competitive. No, for We would have sure. lost maybe 4-3, four, four, But like, like yeah. that Spurs team with a young Tim Duncan. Yep. A yep. young Prime. Tim Duncan? Prime. Rookie Tim Duncan? Yeah. Like you talking about this person, like this David Robinson? Tim yeah.
1: Duncan?
0: bro Yeah. Yo, for real, it's like, that's the thing. Like, I geek out watching the whole like when Bayama and like Chet Holgren conversation because I'm just like, boy, this next generation coming up and these tall playing like point right. guard unicorns. right. right. Like, that this it don't make no sense. I'm like, how are you that? This doesn't equate, like you got handle a six-two guy, but yeah. yet you can shoot from yeah. 30 feet away, like Steph,, yep. and then yep. because you're so tall, no one can block your shot, and yet you <laughs> block. block. I'm like, wait, what? This doesn't make sense, and yet it's funny how the NBA like, because you remember back in the day, we watched basketball, right? Players who were that big, what were they asked to do? Post, post, rebound, yeah. play D. Yep, yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And so every once in a while you had players who, who were bucking that bucking that, right? If you go back to like Naughty's basketball, one of the players that comes to mind who would have been very successful in twenty twenty-three is Sabonis on the Blazers, man. Yeah. 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 He would if he didn't get injured, he would have been a true all time great at the NBA. Like I remember watching him and the great Blazers Lakers here. So like boy, if he could have gotten off the ground, because they showed footage of him when he was playing for Lithuania and he wasn't injured. I was like, right. oh, oh my God. <laughs> and then you fast forward to like, you know, a Luka Doncic and you go, you know, to a Dirk and all these great European players. Like, Sabonis is one line. of the early ones, man. Yep. And they may rest in peace. Rest like, Drazen Petrovic, man. Drazen Pet right? Woo! Right. Some, that you, big you, European wave. Du-
1: yeah, you're you're doing something I don't see a lot of Generation X or or like older millennials do, which is like give props to the younger NBA. Because like I feel like dudes my age on average, dudes my age or older are on average <laughs> like the NBA is soft, you know, like they 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 criminalize uh defense, no hand checking makes things whacker and it's just less physical and all you're doing is shooting threes, right? There, there's no value of the post game, so you know it's interesting hearing you value both. Yeah, like and, well, and random, but things I don't know evolve.
0: Yeah, like if we think about yeah. like how we know each other, K-12 education evolves. Yeah, you know standards evolve. Hopefully, standards get better, curricula get better, pedagogy deepens. But there are enduring values and things that I think tend to be true in K-12 yeah. ed when there's good things happening for kids who look like us and the same in the nba when the game is good the game is good do i respect yeah. what i used to see in nick's bully ball like the the right. crazy nick's heat games in yeah. the 90s yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, 2000s yeah. when the scores are like 75 to 74 right it was a little painful to watch at times in terms of like a casual fan experience from like someone who enjoyed basketball yeah. And enjoys physicality. That I, yes, but I also enjoy watching games that go one forty five to one forty. Yeah, 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 right. I think it all depends on like how you enjoy the game. And I think one of the things that I've learned as a value is as things things always evolve, changes always happening. It's just <laughs> you decide to change with it.
1: Yeah,
0: and that yeah. that's that's everyone makes an individual decision about that, right? But I think also a lot of it comes from like enjoying the nba folks from back in the day and i, I can even go back in like the 70s and the 60s i just like being a fan of like right. creativity and like great players right yeah, yeah. is and the way that i work out is seeing that there are folks who are around my age who are like doing it right one of my previous podcast guests is in her early 50s and like killing the game yeah amazing fitness instructor power lifts, all these things right and but most of the folks I work out with are usually in their mid thirties and younger. And so I I think for mm-hmm. me on a personal level, I'm always around folks when I work out where I work out with much younger folks. And so yeah. I see for me, it really becomes game recognized game. Like you don't have to approach things the same way that I do. Everyone approaches things differently. But if the outcome is like, oh wait, for that, those sprawl jumps of naughty yards, your time, right, I see you. Okay. Yeah. This old man at 48 is a powerlifter didn't do so bad. I had a top 10 time in the gym, right? Not bad, but I'm a powerlifter. I'm not going to smoke people because my cardio is not at the level it could be because I don't train it, but I'm an eye shape. This 48-year-old usually runs circles on most people, right? And so there's an understanding of like loving what youth are doing because I am at that age where it's just like, man, sometimes people interact with like the 13, 15, 20 years older than like, But yet I think because of my that, I feel a certain level of youthfulness. I always have. I think I've always had a youthful outlook on life.
1: Yeah. No, I I hear that. I feel like with me, my youthfulness, like it's weird. Like it's like I feel youthful, but at the same time, I also am very aware of like generational differences. So Mm -hmm. for example, I'm in a doctoral program uh, at the University of Rochester, right? And All right. yeah, I got to walk on campus to go to class. And while I feel like I could probably have like a meaningful conversation where I learn and provide learning with any of these like younger college students, I do feel like 21 Jump Street. <laughs> like where, <laughs> where I just feel like this, this older dude, oh. like just walking around campus.
0: <laughs> and you and, see... Like I, I, yeah. I laugh because that reference. When I yeah. use that reference at the gym I work out at, people will be like, "It's yeah. like crickets." I'm like, "Yeah, you know that's the first show that Johnny Depp like got put on wax." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you don't recognize the. T-. I'm like people are like, "Oh yeah, I watched the movie." I'm like, "No, no, not the movie." No, 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 not not the show tail, on Fox no. Holly right. Robinson singing the <laughs> intro song. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And like you know <laughs> when one of the props to Dustin Nguyen was like sexy Asian man on TV, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Playing yeah, yeah. one of the detectives and like being able to do his thing. Like that was the show in the 80s, man. Well, no, uh. I,
1: I feel very just like older guy, like, you know, <laughs> with a book bag. I have like a book bag too. Like, what's this guy doing? Yeah. But to your point, like wa- walking in who you are while in recognizing who other people are, even if there are distinct differences is, is highly valuable. And those other people that are different from you We'll recognize that and value that as well. And, and, and bridges of understanding and learning can uh, take place. Whether we're talking about, you know, okay. basketball or education or anything else, okay. I think it's just very important to not feel arrested by your generation. That's really important.
0: Yeah. Or Brandon, just like every rondrings podcast episode. I never know what we're going to get. And the fact that we've yeah, ripped for sorry. 16 minutes, I didn't even ask you. Sorry. We found it. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Because if I would interrupt you, then we would went to the question. I was like, we are flowing so much. The fact you asked yeah. me about IST, I was like, I need to do a sports podcast one of these days, man. And just bring you in like, it's going to be ronderings on sports. You aren't, yeah,
1: yeah. No, and riff on that to, for now. insights there. Maybe think a little different about that tournament.
0: Yeah. But let's start off with, what is your story, Brandon? Okay.
1: I am from Rochester, New York, born in D.C., but raised here. For those who don't know, Rochester, New York is a mid-sized city in the state of New York that's very far away from the five boroughs that most people think
0: <laughs> about. <laughs> right? See, um, as a New Yorker, I know that people are probably like, oh, you're from New York, and that you have to be careful you're not around someone like me. He's like, yeah, I'm from New York. You have to say Rochester because people... Yeah. I get offended, yeah. admittedly, when folks say, like, I'm from New York. And then when I'm like, where? And then if folks then say, usually with a whisper, no offense to Rochester, I'm from Rochester. Okay. Well, folks like, yeah, I'm from New York too. I'm like, oh, word? Because when I see people from New York, I'm like, oh, you're from New York? City. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a <such> bias. <laughs> me
1: and my homie Jeremy, I'm on the board of his uh, literacy organization we we're talking about this just the other day because we talked about our <laughs> college stories where, you know, like a lot of times, youth from the boroughs go upstate in the SUNY system, the state All college the system, right? But like, this is like, you know, a hop, skip and a jump away for us. We're, you know, the B- Buffalo schools, Alfred, you know, like just yeah. a lot of SUNY schools are, are around Western New York. And th- I know y'all call it upstate, but it's technically Western New York. And so we talk about <laughs> <Jeez>. those <laughs> frictions. as the staters, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> da- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> like we talked about those frictions between like, you know, quote unquote upstate and quote unquote downstate. I remember when I first went to school, I went to school at SUNY New Paltz, an hour and a half above okay. New York City, right by Poughkeepsie. Yeah, And I met a girl and we we were talking. She was like, oh, where are you from? It was like orientation day. And I said, uh, Rochester, New York. And she said, uh, oh, is it like really woodsy there? And like I was like, wait, what? It was the first time I encountered somebody <laughs> from the city because you know my family's actually from the city but like I, you know right. i don't didn't really talk about like rochester outside with other city folk outside of them and so like it was my first time seeing how no disrespect the boroughs are often oblivious above any with anything above westchester county that is <laughs> or, that is absolutely or rockland correct. county or
0: rockland yeah, yeah right yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, which i which you know transparently i had to learn what that was when i went to school downstate Newport
0: <laughs> cuz that's that's a couple of hours yeah absolutely yeah, yeah.
1: you know so there there's this this disconnect but like you know I always probably say like Rochester because I I have to also cuz even when I say that I've heard had people say like oh is that in Brooklyn right like it's like no <laughs> no it's like an hour yeah. away from buffalo which is like <laughs> another you know like a whole other experience and, and 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 different it's still very east coast but very different in like walking and and talking and, talk and, and 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 maneuver you know i feel like it's like a mixture of like what you may see in the boroughs but also what you might see in detroit or cleveland or you know any yeah. other kind of or like yeah. uh, pittsburgh you know any other kind of northeastern maybe midwest yeah. style place yeah, but anyway. describe
0: that experience because i think you know from having gotten to know you brand i think yeah. you're you're a proud rochester native right so describe rochester's yeah. impact on you in the continuation of describing your story for us
1: for sure. Um, yeah. So my mother's from uh, the borough. She's from the Bronx. My father's mm-hmm. from here, though. They moved here. And I, I just like my father. My father was a, uh, a civil rights attorney and my mother yeah. was a social worker, but has been like a librarian for like the majority of my life now. So mm-hmm. that probably makes a, makes me make a lot more sense <laughs> in terms of like see, my I educational see background. one thing
0: that's yeah. This lays the roots of the foundation.
1: Yeah. Got it. And, and you talked a lot about opportunities, like, you know, schools providing opportunities and, yes. then, you know, family members being able to seize them and then changing the trajectory. I feel like on my mom's side, my mom was able to go to a good school in the Bronx at the time. And then my father's father was able to find opportunities in Rochester. And that I'm blessed to have, like, you know, benefited from them finding opportunities and seizing opportunities like, you know, in in previous generations. So, you know, I'm in Rochester. Again, father's a civil rights attorney, mother's a librarian. Mm. And I grew up in a neighborhood called the the South Wedge. Now, the South Wedge, if I had to make a city comparison, (laughs) is probably similar to, like, Staten Island. (laughs) Like, in terms of, like,
0: it's... (laughs) Oh, boy. Here's what I mean by that. Here, yeah, okay. here, here's what
1: I mean by that. Here's like, what who I mean takes Staten Island?
0: i was like, what's well, that? So, here,
1: so, here, so here's the thing. So here's the thing, right? This is, why I, this is why I say Staten Island, right? Because when you think of it, it's not a neighborhood that a lot of people think of or an area a lot of people think of when they think of their respective city, right? Like Staten yes. Island is often, you know, considered off to the side. It's an island technically closer to Jersey, I believe, right? Like that kind that is, of-
0: That is correct, yes. That, that kind of
1: thing. But it's still very much a part of the city. And it's still very much like has its own idiosyncrasies, cultures and and, like diversities. And so for example, like when I grew up, a lot of the black and brown folks that lived in the wedge, which wasn't the majority, the same way Staten Island is right. Which wasn't the majority, right. It was like majority, like a working class, low income and some upper middle class, like white folks like Staten Island. But then there was like also pockets, of black and brown folk. Mm-hmm. Like, and most of them kind of concentrated like Wu, you know, Wu was in like Park Hill and Stapleton projects. Yeah. Like, we had a project called a gate, we called it Gateway, but it was called River Park Commons. But it, it was also like Staten Island where if you really wanted to connect with people, you probably had to also leave Staten Island, right? And that's what, actually what Wu did a lot, right? Like Wu, you know, left Staten Island to go to Brooklyn a lot, right? Like RZA mm-hmm. and GZA. I think just is actually from Brooklyn, but so because my father was an active civil rights activist. We were all over the city. So mm-hmm. even though I, you know, grew up in the wedge and got to see a lot of different like worldviews and 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 different cultures and different outlooks on what it means to be an American, my school was in the wedge, but that school was reflected a diver- a deeper diversity than the neighborhood. Actually, mm-hmm. both of my schools were in the wedge, but because it was like a citywide kind of, it wasn't like neighborhood schooling in the same way that a lot of uh-huh. places are and were. Um, it was like yeah. cross-city busing, so I was able to go to schools that way and get culturally immersed <laughs> that way. And also, the rec center attached to the school also, frankly, like most of the white kids that I knew that were working class or middle or upper middle class didn't go to the rec center. All my black and brown friends did, and some of them did, but not 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 most of them. So I grew up in a diverse. It's it's like a diverse non-diverse kind of background it was interesting but it's also like the the neighborhood that frederick Douglass like lived in and did his abolitionist work so there's a lot of history in that neighborhood yeah yeah rochester's Uh, home to like frederick Douglass and like susan b anthony and a bunch of other like abolitionists it was like a pivotal place on the underground railroad and the mm abolitionist movement so you know like there was that history in the backdrop i loved growing up in the wedge for all of its like all of us like our neighborhoods have limitations and also benefits And, and i loved You know, being able to connect with friends, run around, connect with all walks of life from the Wedge, because it could also be a little segregated, like Staten Island. Right. Mm. But be able to, you know, connect the different uh, pieces and parts. I didn't like how the older I got, the more of a suspicious figure I became walking around certain neighborhoods in the the Wedge Mm. or areas in the Wedge. Right. right? Because I'm no longer this cute little black boy running around like now I'm this teenager. So a, a pivotal part of this, I feel like I'm all over the place. Was like my parents split, uh-huh. like as a kid, as a little kid. Mm. But the custody was even, and so the best way I can describe the differences between my parents, my my mother is like a, if you were to picture like a, a very stoic Alice Walker, Toni Morrison kind of type, right? Mm. Okay. And my father's more like. Um, classic civil rights attorney kind of like demeanor, like a, like a, maybe like a Cochran or if you were missing like a, a Cochran, we just got done talking about sports, like a Cochran and like Gumble, <laughs> like maybe mm. like a mix between those two. And oh, so
0: fascinating. Like, yeah,
1: so the split custody allowed for even influence. Like, so my, my mother's more like the literary deep kind of philosophical thinker. My father's more like the legal, Civil rights kind of thinker activists you know with different kind of sensibilities of what it means to like be a, a black American and yeah. so to like uh, literally like go to each house every other day like that's yeah. that was my that was the custody agreement one day I was you know on a in a part of the wedge that was more middle class another day I was part more working class and just had different got exposed to different sensibilities, literally like switching back and forth back and forth and you know I went to uh, a magnet school. Right. You just talked about
0: when I, right before we recorded, like that being a pivotal moment in my life and my wife's life, Shanita, who you know very well. There seems to be this theme, like, I I think maybe intentionally, unintentionally, a Mm -hmm. lot of the folks I feel like I've had on this podcast, at least the ones I can, if I remember where they went to high school, went to a magnet high school.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And when we were talking about it, it reaffirmed the idea that I had in my mind around like, Magnet schools, like you know, especially the magnets, like the literal magnets we had when we were like growing up in science classes, they yeah. attract and repel, right? So, uh, in, in one, in one, in one sense, speak on that. My mother, who wasn't necessarily like balling, right, but knew the system, and yes. my father, who like was like middle class, right. They know the system. Granted, there's the racial factor, but like they know the system and there's a there's a class factor that gives them navigation abilities. Right. And so um, an education factor, because whenever I wasn't whenever I wasn't economically privileged, I was always intellectually and educationally privileged straight up. And because Mm. of that, that privilege, I believe I was able to get into a magnet program like that. Right. At the same time, if you don't have that privilege and. You don't have those makeups in your socioeconomic identities or your cultural identities, then it's easy for that kind of program to repel a person or people or families. It wasn't a coincidence that that program, and first of all, magnets by design are designed to pull in middle class, often white folks, right? Are they the only people that they pull in? No. But it's designed to get white, middle class Americans to be reinvested into the public education system. And so I was a part of that program and I loved it. It was grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful in all the ways. (laughs) Right. Speak that gleam.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It
1: was just, it was, Mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't have language like that. Right. But like, I I really appreciated uh, how we thought about things, what we thought about and the teachers that taught us in that process. Like, I, I don't have that. I don't have like a deep story outside of my kindergarten teacher. Of like having the bad teacher that told me I was a mountain up. I don't have that, right? Like not all my teachers were stellar, but like overall, like again, because I feel like my economic and educational privilege, I had been tracked through a school district which wasn't great to have good to great experiences, like in like major achievement programs, you know, IB, international baccalaureate, magnet schools, right? Like mm -hmm, I was able to be tracked through a system that a lot of kids who look like me didn't have those same privileges, right? So that's very important. But with that said, like, it gave me a great foundation. It made me appreciate the education process. It created a foundation for me to even think to be like being a teacher would be a thing, right? Because I remember distinctly being in ELA class and we're going over literary devices. uh, And In this particular unit, it was not diverse. It was like a lot of Victorian stuff. Great Gatsby, oh, yeah. this, this, this particular, and I'll do you fair for that teacher. We did read other books, but like in that yeah. particular season, it was just like very, 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 very hyper printer paper white. <laughs> and so, but like, as we were going over those devices, I was like, wait a minute, Nas does this, Common does this, Ghostface See? does this. Cause like, mm-hmm. you know, from like yeah, man. elementary, not late elementary, middle school to like up to high school, like I'm fully ensconced and. Being a hip hop head. And so making parallels and that the question comes to my mind is like, what would have happened if I learned these things from the lens of my favorite artists? And so that kind of started me thinking around, like, what it would it mean to be an educator? Mm-hmm. And so by the time I went to school, I decided, like, I was either going to be into journalism or education. I chose education. OK, uh, so that's that's my general I guess story (laughs) around how I got here from, from like childhood to adolescence um, into this profession in space.
0: Yeah. Brian, that's so much to go on there. I can go in like 85 different directions, but admittedly you and I love hip hop. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you something that sounds like the question that's posed in Brown Sugar. Yeah. You know, a question i asked, like, when did you fall in love with hip hop? When did you fall in love with hip hop? When did you know?
1: Uh, fall in love that's 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 a good question I, i'll try not yeah. to be complicatedly answer it i think <laughs> okay the, the moment that comes to my mind is watching mm. the wu-tang triumph video Ooh. um
0: and that violin oh get me going man.
1: Listen, so like at the time i've heard i've heard hip hop like actually the, there's like a cassette tape r- uh, running around somewhere while I'm rapping to Coolio's "Gangsta's Paradise," right? Like, I, like yeah. I've <laughs> I've been loved it before, you know, that particular or liked it or appreciated, but like when I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" I don't even understand what they were talking about, right? Because mm-hmm. you know their references can be so cryptic and the flow is flying yes. by a million miles per hour, but just like. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is said and how it's said and it's visually represented. I'm like, yo, who are these dudes in the cage just like rapping their behinds? Like, and end up being Raekwon and Ghost, of course, right? But like, mind you, I, I was 10 when that came out. I was 10, maybe 11. Wow. And so, like, I was like, what is this? And and from there, I was just like, I, I need, I need to know what this is. This is different from any of the things I kind of been uh, more mass produced fed in, on the hip hop, you know, kind of kind of a, a industry, right? Like, you know, cause at the time the the bigger things were like Mace, Puff Daddy,
0: All the bad you know, boy like artists, Tupac,
1: yeah. you know, like, the, but I was, I was primarily exposed to like the top commercial Coolio, right? At the time, like the top commercial people, right? But like in terms of like raw uh, exposure and demonstration of like the culture, that was probably the first time at least that I'm mm. able to recall where I was like, "Whoa!" Where I was able to like love it for myself, explore something new about it for myself, as opposed to like this is popular and I like it and I'm cool with it and I'm doing it. But this is something I was like, "Whoa!" That that yeah. so that blew my mind, and I, I'll, uh, I'll stick with that answer.
0: Fascinating you say that because I still remember when you know Wu's first album came out, when Thirty Six Chambers came out. Yeah, man, that date in '93 because I think it's around the same time that midnight marauders came out yeah, yeah, which for me yeah. is still my favorite hip-hop album of all time my, like it's is best yeah. but for me like favorite that i the first album hip-hop album i ever listened to beginning to end and they didn't have to skip anything that yeah. i re- like that's probably a later time that i fell in love with hip-hop i, I fell in love with it again but yeah. i go back to childhood because growing up in south Ozone park queens jamaica queens right yeah having older brothers, I still remember my brother Ariel having Sucker MC on a 45. Oh, wow. I was like, what is this? And that boom, bat beat on Sucker MC to this day. I was like, oh, because similar to your, like listening to like, you know, pop, popular, you know, radio, hip hop, a lot of my growing up had to listen to Z100 And what my Mm. sisters were listening to a lot of the time. So as much as I grew up with hip hop, you know what also lives in Ron Rapatalo's playlist? Lots of pop and rock music from the 80s. All of it. Bon Jovi, the rock ballads, Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, all the 80s like theme music. There's probably not an 80s show. If you play a snippet from the theme music, then I won't know the damn title. Like boop.
1: Yeah. I remember, yeah. This is
0: back when you would have theme music for songs, for, for, for shows, and you really do sure. it, right? Yep. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, Robin Thicke's dad. People don't yeah, know yeah, this. Yeah. Time. Like, Alan Thicke was one of the big writers and singers of like 70s and 80s TV theme songs. Word. Yep. throwing pains i mean which he was on right but you know right, what i'm saying right, it's like oh yeah yeah, yeah. Damn, look at this. <laughs> i'm yeah. not gonna start singing that on because that's for karaoke Word. but <laughs> you know those times that you fall in love with something like we were talking about this before we record like you evoke a feeling we're talking about music like you go yeah. back to that moment and it like creates this wow man like i think back like listen to that i can still remember being the kid playing it on the record player we had at home and being like, oh, what? Oh, that beat. Because my own love of hip hop, and Shanine and I always go back and forth on this, is when you talked about how fast hip hop flow can be, that's not all hip hop. But my ear has never, it's gotten better over the years. But my initial inclination in my love of hip hop has always been the rhythm. It's always been the beat. Always, right? So if a song is a hot hook, I'm going to know there. it, yeah. you know? And so I will know stuff. And then like, she was like, go ahead, pass the mic to you. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it it's really embarrassing how few hip hop lyrics I know. Considering yeah. Cause all you, the hip hop, I, I just, that's not where my head has gone. But if we were to play 90s R&B, you start playing some like 112, like voice yeah, yeah, to men. Yeah. I will know every lyric for the most part. It's just, yeah. it's always fascinating. So like, there's always been a part of me that's like, Am I a hip hop imposter? Cause I don't know the listen. I would see folks I I because I can't go back and be like, yo, I love that joint and I love that lyric. I'm like, just me nodding like, oh, that got yeah, so it's, bad. It's,
1: yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I it's been interesting. I've been wrestling with that or dealing with that a lot over the past several years because I I think both of those things, like, you know, what it does for your heart and what it does for your mind. Right uh, are like both things that are present, but one thing often gets prioritized. So for me, you know, whatever Wu-Tang was talking about, right, in addition to the sound and the energy and like the the, the things that captive, capture what they're talking about, like, but it was like what they were talking about was the prioritized thing for me. But then like, you know, there's there's plenty of hip hop or plenty of folks who are like, this is what it makes me feel as opposed to this is what, it makes me think. Or they have both, but just again, one is just more valued, right? And I think I think that's okay. Like, and I think that's just true with a lot of great musicians. Like a lot of people who are big Michael Jackson fans don't know the lyrics to black and white, or they don't know the lyrics to Billy Jean, or they don't know the lyrics to wanna be starting something, right? Even to this day, mm-hmm. like I don't really know what the lyrics are to wanna be starting something. It's a great song and I, I know no it yeah. right. I think there there's room for that right and and it's yeah. interesting to hear you talk about how you started with like tribe. I had to like work backwards, right mm. all of us kind of if you, if you're a part of a culture right yes or 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 a community of there's this theory now that we're learning that we learned in this semester called community of practice if you're like a community of practice, like a group of folks who have a similar value set and yes. you know do things based off of that value set, if you're an authentic member of that, you end up working backwards. So for me, like, you know, I heard Wu, I heard that I saw the, 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 uh, Triumph video. I then had to go back, check out, you know, enter the Wu-Tang. Right. Cause I was six when that came out and my mother's not going to let me listen to Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to F with. Right. <laughs> and so, but like, I I go back and I go back before then. Right. And, you know, I, I check out, uh, Rakim and go back before then and check out Run DMC, and then go back before then and check out, you know, like Grandmaster Flash and and yep. those and, and 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 then ultimately I go back to having conversations with my mother who was there during the making of all this, right? Exactly. Who was in the Bronx yep. Community Center when Van Bata was throwing all those jams. Ooh, so that must have been like,
0: something, yo. Yeah, like, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. It's without knowing it.
1: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like one yep. one of the things. One of the things I said, and because, you know, I end up becoming a, a rhymer, like in, as being a participant. And one of the things that yeah, I said yeah. in a song was like, um, I'm trying to remember exact lyrics because now, now that I've been slowing down, like it's hard for me to recall things myself. But um, what I said, I said, um, at times you were what your parents were before you were born. Bunch of things you ain't witnessed. So you wasn't warned. Right. Like my mother was all the way into the mm-hmm. hip hop culture, but didn't yeah. necessarily talk about it as I was growing up, but then as I was like, yeah, I just heard L.O. Cool J's, um, you know, batter and Deffer album. She was like, oh yeah, no, the Bristol hotel is a crazy st- a song. I was like, wait, what, you know, like, you know, so, but, right. <laughs> then, but then I go on to say, um, you know, they say DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. I say it's divine and negative attachments. Ooh. We And and I forgot the next line after that, but like I flipped DNA again. I say we enter with data, narration and ancestors, right? Like this idea that you continue, you're just a continuation, right? Um, Mm. And you get to, as proven by epigenetics, you get to turn, you can dictate which, you know, genes you flip on and flip off in certain regards by healing, by doing certain things for your body, right? To kind of shape the next set of genetics that gets passed on. But like you're receiving things. Right. And yeah. and and so seen and unseen things, known and unknown things, predicted and unpredicted things. So it's been interesting going back just to see I'm doing something that, you know, or is active in something that is not new. Like, you know, the word says, like, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's things, you know, routinely uh, pop up. And even recently, my, me and my sister, I told you, my father's family's from up here uh, and yeah. upstate. My sister was big into, like, genealogy and, you know, Ancestry.com stuff. She found, I've got to make sure I got this right, like a fourth great-grandparent that lived a county down from us. Wow. And, and oh, like, man. their uh uh-huh. yeah, like, they, they, they fought in the Civil War, right, moved, like, a county down from us. I guess wow. there have been, like, Black folks and, like, biracial Black folks um, because they, they were called mulattoes at the time on the census that lived yep. up in this general area, like yep. during slavery for a while. And I guess we had some family members that were a part of that. And we went mm. down to actually see the uh, the gravestone and we pulled up the obituary and the obituary talked about a man who was a farmer and taught like the Bible, right? I'm now getting into <laughs> agriculture and wow. like getting into, well, I've always been teaching, but I've actually been getting into like understanding scripture better. So like, mm. it's just fascinating to see again, that data and narration, like in our DNA, <laughs> you Absolutely. know, like continue, yeah. even though I had no idea that this man existed, you know? So it's, it's been an interesting, especially as you get older, right? Like to see what's been passed on and what you're passing on.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you and I need Skip Gates to do a finding your roots episode for you and I and our families, right? Oh, That's be been cool. the dream. Like yeah. Janine and I love watching, and every time I go and watch an episode, it's like if we can get his team and him to do an episode, I, it would be so incredible. To, like figure out those roots and connections to be able to say, wait, I understand that I am a certain way, and maybe from. My parents, I have an understanding, maybe even grandparents, but when you start to see then the lineage and the beauty of that show is to see, wait, this foundation, this DNA and the ways you talked about what DNA could be, if you riff on what DNA could be, yeah. right? The data narratives particularly like sticks out to me, right? Is stories are passed down in our DNA, one hundred percent, right? Things are right. encoded. Like also Historical traumas encoded in our DNA. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of things that I think sometimes, and the science continues to emerge and get deeper on it, right? But that deoxyribonucleic acid passes down so much, both seen, unseen, observed, witnessed, and unknown.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? That's right. And so it's just fat. Like the more that we can, of course, getting back into education, deepen our roots, deepen our knowledge, have access to glean, right?
1: Yeah,
0: the better off we're going to be to be able to access this, those things because sometimes they're not at our very feet. You have to go find. Yeah. So I'm curious, yeah. Brandon, to to go into what you do now. Tell the audience what you're doing now, what you're up to with that work, and what you're aspiring to do in the world of K twelve education.
1: Yeah. So currently, right now, I'm like an education consultant. Yeah. I've I've been working with uh, districts and companies around curricular implementation and just curriculum development. Mm. And that's been the majority of the work right now. And it's been interesting doing that because, you know, if you asked me when I started in the classroom in 2010, if you asked me in 2011, like if a job like this even existed, I would have been like, no, like, what are you talking about? Like, You you teach in classrooms. That's what, what, like, I feel like the average educator has limited awareness of all the other things they could be doing with their particular trade, right? Yes. And maybe even should be for two reasons. One, you may need a break. We talked about that in our podcast a bit in terms of, like, the darkness that Mm -hmm. can exist in a lot of dysfunctional school systems. Your passion for education is there, but you are being eroded by the toxicity of the systems and it's important to know other ways you can you know pursue your passion without being eroded even if it means you just take a step back or step out and then go back in right but then also there are plenty of people who are meant to be in the world of education that are not supposed to be teaching period amen right yeah. mm-hmm. like and it's, it's people shouldn't be shamed into that right like it, we were just talking about the nba right There are people who could be active in the world of basketball that don't need to be on the starting five, period, that don't need to be the team's most valuable player. Right. Like if you are a role player, that is okay, And that's essential, even if you're not the all star. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be limited to that. Right. Because if you are if you do have capacities untapped to do something different, then go. Absolutely. But like whatever your role is, that's okay whatever your destiny is with that, that's okay. Right. But instead we have people feeling like I have to be this because that's all they know. Right. Like, and so like, maybe you do need to be, maybe you don't need to be in front of kids right now or ever. Maybe you just need to be writing curriculum. Right. Um, Or maybe you need to be um, informing policy. Right. From your experience, or maybe you need to be like, there's just, there are a lot of opportunities out there. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be, uh, in a space where I'm maneuvering economically independently, but still doing meaningful work and having a flexibility to kind of get regrounded in my Rochester community. Because when I was doing work and unbounded, a lot of it was like, you know, national state to state, you know, engaging right. districts and schools. And while I stay connected to my community in like smaller ways, like i ran a book club and, you know, mm-hmm. like if somebody asked me to do this, I'd do it right. like, you know, like just a little, little, one-off kind of activists, kind of support things that, that would take place. Like I just wasn't as immersed the way I was pre-Unbounded, mm. but it, it, it was also a really important hiatus away from, I guess, like uh, the throes of like Rochester education activism um, because it, it got, it got, <laughs> I feel like um, I needed like a separation from that more than I initially realized Cause another part, cause we didn't get too deep and we just talked about my childhood, but when I decided I wanted to be a teacher yeah. around the ex- exact same time, my father decided he wanted to run for school board. Oh,
0: wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So he became mm. a school board member. And then wow. by the time I finished my degree in secondary English education, he became board president, if I'm not mistaken. No, I don't think he was board president yet. Mm. He wasn't board president. He was like vice president, but he was still like on the board. Mm. And so I don't know how familiar you are with counterintuitive hiring. Pra- oh, yes, you do. Like you definitely know about counterintuitive hiring practices for uh, education systems. <laughs> you that you know that uh, very well. <laughs> I wish I
0: didn't know <laughs> yeah. that, but so, yes,
1: so I uh, do. At, at the time, Rochester was like a case study for that, and so me and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, were like, we went to school to be educators. Like, that's what we went. And we were proud of the district. We wanted to go back and serve. And but when we were going back, everybody was picking us up except for the district that we were applying for and wanted to work for. And they needed it. Like, right? they even had stuff on the news about, in my case, for being an ELA teacher. They right. had stuff on the news about getting grants and write, you know, like money to support English teachers coming into the district. But like you know, it didn't, it didn't matter. Like, but at the mean, same time, the suburban districts and the charters were giving us opportunities to sub or interview or whatever have you. And my father would be in my father would ask me like, well, how's it going? I tell him like, Hey, no attention. Hey, no attention. Oh, this suburbs give me the attention. Oh, they gave me an opportunity. And then one day he was just like, yo, this is crazy. Do you want me to say something? And I said, yeah. Now growing up with him and his role in the community, I'm always careful. I, I, I have historically tried to be careful around making sure that our life as father and son are like good and not necessarily like, you know, like tainted by Rochester politics. Mm, yeah. And so like, and, and navigating that, and he's, and, he, and overall, I feel like he's done a great job of like, you know, letting me be me and let me figure things out. For myself cuz you know as much as i was trying to figure out back to repeating things as much as i was trying to figure out things for myself i was only starting like my dad <laughs> because one he also was very like just independent i'm gonna do it myself right like and then also i forgot that he went to school to be for education at first too right like uh-huh. his undergrad was in education and his master's degree was in law right so like you know again As much as you move forward, you're really only bringing you know things from backward with you sometimes. So, to my understanding, what he ended up doing was being like he he reached out to like the superintendent because he had been talking about like the lack of black and brown people in in education well before I got my degree. So it's like listen, we are still running into this issue around like bringing pipelining black and brown people into the profession in this area. Perfect examples are. My son and his girlfriend who are trying to become educators, but like this system is being a mess. Stuff like this needs to change. Fast forward, maybe two weeks after that, it's all over the news. Van White tries to get his son into the Rochester City School District. Like it just becomes like this this really sensationalized, misinterpreted and Um. uh, misguidedly hypocritical kind of like narrative around
0: what took place. Because it sells, unfortunately. It sucks, right? And it spins a narrative, right? The system bucks back and saying, how dare you, black man in position of authority, to question the way that we're hiring? So we're going to spin it that this is nepotism. Yeah. When in fact, none of what you said was about like, because look, clearly, let's speak some truth Like in that if he wanted to get you and your girlfriend at the time, now your wife, a, a position, he could have worked some backdoor and no one would have ever known about it. And it 100%. probably would have been accepted because no. I'm a VP of the board. You ain't gonna take care of my son and his girlfriend. Are you out of no. your mind? No. Right? But he decided to go the route of like, hey, let's have this constructive conversation and fixing the system. No. The system, these systems of oppression and equity, right? You think about LIFO. I mean, there are all these things in counterintuitive to hiring seniority. Like, we're just like, no. but what does that have to do with Than principles that people say they believe in of one, fairness, two, that there's a true, like you're hiring the best person. Is seniority in LIFO tied to hiring the best person? I haven't heard any clear argument of anybody telling me otherwise, right? When you then Mm. start to peel those layers of some of the counterintuitive hiring practices I've seen of writ large, any school district in America, right? It is bucked on being able to keep folks jobs because what are school districts oftentimes the you know different companies because I did my research remember when you and I started talking because I know you've known Shanita through a little bit through the unbound world was yeah. when I did a Rochester you know um, right. search which I will yes. not name because yeah, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> off lot right for sure but hearing some of the pot like politics of these things right and what often happens in what is still a mid-sized city rochester school district probably employs a heck of a lot of people in rochester and what are the one of the things that when you start to talk about money is related to power you tie these things together counterintuitive hiring practices exist to keep people in power because keeping people in power is about money and is about employment it also then gets tied and look, this has always been my observation. Like, I, you know, I fight till the end of days. So and this is not to throw teachers unions under the bus. That's not what I'm doing here. But let's be clear. Right, yeah. Oftentimes, how teacher unions evolved in many places in America is to keep teachers employed because teacher unions have power having teachers be in union membership to boot those folks like, life, like trying to get, you know, younger black and brown teachers into the system who... May start to ask the questions like, Wait, what do y'all do? Why do y'all exist? Right? And maybe without knowing the history of like unions and why they rightfully so do exist, but at the same time saying, But wait, I have to opt, I'm automatically in the union when I join, but why is that? And what kind of benefits and what does this mean? And like, Wait, what are the ways that like you protect teachers? And you start to find that's wait, what's the teachers' union contract? Mm -hmm. I mean, Brandon, you start. Counterintuitive hiring practices are like a small sliver of the baked-in inequity that perpetuates in many layers of just a school district. And everyone that knows the game knows this. Like this is not this is not rocket science to your dad, to the superintendent, the senior leaders there, a principal, a teacher like when you put people in a situation that's not being recorded in a podcast, and we're talking a little bit of like speaking and making this explicit, right? Yeah. People kind of know these things, right? But yet there's a, a reluctance B kind of like a, well, what does that do for me? If I speak truth to power, because clearly I'm curious, like what happened in the situation of your dad being put on blast? Like what happened? So with all that noise and news. so,
1: (laughs) It became a part of, like, the news cycle for a little bit. Yeah. And there became, like, uh, like this, again, like, a misguided, unnecessary, like, debate about nepotism. Because, you know, we wasn't trying to be superintendents. We was trying to be subs. And it wasn't like he was, like, like you already noted. It wasn't like he did some back, you know, door deal around, like, a uh, backroom deal around, like, hey put my son on as a sub, like, you know, that, that, right. that didn't happen. And it was also like a revisited, frequently revisited subject around the black and Brown teacher pipeline. And I think, well, one, it reminded me of like the Rochester political circus. Uh, I, I had known it for the majority of my life or been right. familiar with it, but like, this was probably like the the loudest it had been because I it was personally involved me. But then right. I also knew like, If there's anybody who thinks that something like this is going to stop me (laughs) and my resolve to teaching how I want to teach and where I feel called to teach, they're playing themselves. So I continued, like, you know, Mm -hmm. naming things that were true and calling up central office, asking, like, listen, I saw this on the news. Is it true that, you know, like, I I think I brought up the ELA teacher thing. Is it true that you're short on ELA teachers like if so, um, how do I go about getting an interview? And you know, it, it went about like conservative Rochester radio for a bit. It went about mm-hmm. like a black Rochester radio a bit, and then it died. And then I ended up like being able to interview and do like a trial like lesson a a middle school uh, in Rochester. The situation was like the teacher she got pushed out, like the narrative is she got pushed out by the kids, right? When I I walked into the classroom, books and papers were like all over the back. Kids were, you know, just like, you know, just wilding out, right? Um, But like I performed in that that substitution kind of demonstration enough to be able to be offered that job. And so from there, you know, I, I taught at that school loved it, learned a lot about myself. Cause again, like, you know, when you start teaching at 20 something, like you, you don't really know who you are, right. You know, things you want to do, you know, things about yourself, right? but you are still learning about who you are. Right. Like, so I started a job like that as a young man, I got married around that same time as a young man. And I'm still Mm. like doing activist stuff in the community, pretty actively as a young man. So my plate was very full, but I also still had a lot of unpacking and realization about myself that needed to be taking place at the same time. And so it was a very enlightening and like busy time and and just like a, a very energetic uh time for me. And um, you know, I love the school. I feel like I had established a good relationship with the school overall, good relationship with the kids. You know, just ran into a kid like at church the other day, um, who's yeah. like 24 now. Right. Whoa. And that was the other thing I put in that same song. I said, I'm Old till I see my OGs, teachers, and parents. I'm young till I see my old students now parents. Right. <laughs> because like yeah. just to see the 24-year-olds like walk around with their kids, right? And just be like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, like Mr. White, you are my favorite teacher. Da-da-da. You know, so I was able to run into her. And that that and that happens a decent amount, especially as I'm more grounded in Rochester. So yeah. but yeah, that so that was my that was my experience as a middle school ELA teacher. You know, I was able to like incorporate a lot of these hip hop sensibilities of the the teacher's union actually had like a subdivision that talked a lot about culture responsive teaching. And you brought up the union is really the union. I've grown to have like a more complex, nuanced understanding of like unionism, particularly education in the United States, where it can be so necessary and provide so much protection at the same time. Yeah, At the same time, they could be they could be doing a lot more, right? And sometimes I think that the orientation has to not just be around protecting teachers, but protecting teachers for the sake of protecting community. Right. And, and when yes, those things
0: that, man, yeah, and when those things
1: and when those things are disconnected, right? And you only are protect when you're when you're disproportionately protecting teachers without that bottom line of protecting community, like, then you run into issues, right? You know, so, but like, in this case, this union, in terms of one of its benefits was it had like a PLC that focused mm. on culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies. Mm. And Dr. Goodwin, Landa Montalvo, like, they they helped me think about mm. how to take my raw skill and refine it into actual, like, pedagogical content wow. knowledge, and and, yeah. and be a sharper teacher, um, not just like an inspirational one. Right. Yeah. And so mm. I, I did that for about like seven years the last two or like focused on restorative practice. And then I got asked, like, or told about Unbounded as yeah. and they had a residency program. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I, I'll check it out. And it seemed like up my alley. And it reminded me how much I appreciated content because I was out of content for like a year or two at that point. Right. And, uh, you know, went through the interview process, which mm-hmm. was very rigorous, um, and got in. And and you know, for the next six years, mm-hmm. I ended up working for Unbound as an ELA specialist. I loved mm-hmm. it. Got to meet some dope folk like yourself mm-hmm. and okay, Shanita, and just like get to look at education from like a more national lens, which is so important because again, Rochester can be so, so it can be like a uh, very insulated. Could be very yeah. insulated in 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 thinking and in practice. So it was very rich to be able to see other play how other places and spaces and move with yeah. like policy practices and procedures. So that that that's that unbounded was like a a, a major uh, gift and blessing. We wouldn't be talking right now if it wasn't for my my opportunities through there. And then Absolutely. it got to a point yeah. where I was like, you know what, like because I told Mark who you had on. Uh, you yes. know, a few episodes mm-hmm. ago, Mark Etienne, Shout out to the big homie, mm-hmm. right, right. Whose vulnerability in this episode kind of like inspired me to be a little bit more transparent because he 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 gave like a very compelling story about his life and how it led to education.
0: Oh, I just let Mark go because like yeah. if you remember that episode, I probably talked from like the first couple of minutes and then he went a good forty five minutes straight. Like Mark's yeah, story is so compelling. I was just like, all right, I'm a, hmm, yes. And that story was, so, he basically answered, all, like, I think as he talked, all the questions I might've asked. Yeah. Right. No, it was, it was, and it, it was, was like, all time. right, it's time for the rendering. Like I might've right. asked, it was <laughs> massive, like, that's why I told you in this episode, and even before, like when we pregame, right, I never know what's, what we going to get. Like, this is the first episode I could think of that. I asked the, what's your story question? Like 15 yeah. minutes. in. sometimes it happens at the five or 10 minute mark, but like, we had such a good dialogue going like as a host. I'm just like, well, we just ripping. Like that's the point of the the episode is like we just we just riffing and people are gonna be interested in the riff.
1: Yeah. We free, freestyle no, for a little bit, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, no, indeed. I, I used to. Now like i I man, I I hate to think what would fly out of my mouth in the freestyle right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. It would be would probably be yeah. really unimpressive.
0: But (laughs) One of the the things I wanted to close out with what you shared in your educator journey, right, especially having to fight as hard as you did to be able to get that ELA role and then the way you were tracked from a young age, but in a positive way based on how you were, as you said, economically and intellectually privileged is the systems are built to have certain incentives, yeah. and when you don't know what those incentives are, you think the systems are built for fairness and equity. We're fairness. For sure. There are very few systems I can think of that are really built for equity in America. Yeah. I, I mean, there might be some policies that are, but systems, right. whole systems, yeah. they're not designed for. Right? There are policies that try to buck back against that because this gets into like our origin story and family or country. Like when people realize that history. And then I remember seeing this graph about like K-12 timeline in terms of policy. You probably have seen this website. It's a website I've shared with people. You I know go, exactly what you're talking oh about. Oh my yeah. God, wait, what? You go, wait, how is it? Like when I step back and think through those 250 plus years mm-hmm. of history, I go, well, it's not 250, it's like 230, 240, right? How have we educated as many kids as we have? Right, because the systems of public education were not designed to educate all kids. Yeah. Argue still today that's not about all kids, even if, so, because some of it is trying to fit to shift the system, change the system for that to to, to be real. So you're shifting a system that was not designed for that. And I think anybody, when when I've had these conversations with any of you in Kate's old Ed, like you just, we all understand that premise and often understand that premise because of what we lived before we became. Educators, yeah. right? And it's just one of those things. I think the headline I would give is around the inequity and fairness that exists in the system. It's fucking tiring to have to keep fighting. Yeah. Why you had yeah. to fight that hard to get that role? I think anybody listening to this, it is that is maddening. And yet, all you needed to be given was the opportunity. When yeah. you were given the opportunity, it, this sounds like a movie at some level, right? Well, why does this like this? Shouldn't be a movie. This should just be something that's commonplace because what's what folks, this goes up against like the meritocracy that people believe systems exist in America, which don't disproportionately. And to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like what, mm, what exists? It's no, it's more like, can I get the hookup. Who do I know? And how do I like kind of navigate and kind of like do this in the system? Right. Yeah. It just, it's so, Fundamentally, and I think people, I hope at their core, understand and feel that emotion of unfairness because I think that's the start of then starting to ask the questions of, wait, why is there this disproportionality? Why was this built this way? How do we start to not only fix this, but dismantle those things and make things better? Because I think I'd like to believe people at their core believe in certain principles like fairness and folks having opportunities and things and yet when these things don't happen i think what often happens in my mind is a cognitive dissonance and rationalization of why these things exist because then yeah. people put these other values of like well these things well they should exist but i'm like that's not the output of the system does not say this is meritocracy
1: yeah
0: those things don't track in many we can go through so many different systems instances and it just For sure. right so i wanted to bring that but I'd be remiss because Brandon, we're at that time, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your rondering? What's the lesson or value you want to share with the audience?
1: I want to, fresh off that story, I want to share and fresh off of your like summarization of yeah. what took place. My rondering is how do we stop ethnic tribalism from serving white supremacy? I ask that because when I think back to that moment, well, I'm thinking of two things. I came back from the Black Male Educator convening like a couple weeks ago. Yes. Chris Emden gave like a powerful keynote, as he usually mm. does at the end, closing yes. my keynote. And he talked about this idea around folks who basically like folks who commit themselves to the cause. And because they feel so devoted to the cause, they don't have a devotion for self development and awareness of how like their own i guess like limitations shortchanges their devotion to the cause um like it almost provides an entitlement to not do your own self work just because you say you're down for the people or that you are down for social change right mm. like your own inner work is really important and i bring that up to say like at that time it's i i'd be r- irresponsible if i said I knew exactly who was responsible for putting that out there and fed that to the news. But it's pretty safe to say that they were black or brown because at the time, like that's just who was on the school board at that time and who was in central office largely at the time. And I've since seen in Rochester and in other places, a lot of black and brown folks using their own personal limitations and their own personal frustrations manifest in their work which they say they're doing to advance and progress and be selfless Ooh, but you're not Brandy. recognizing you're
0: touching a third rail here brother know, you know that know. <laughs> and, and,
1: and, <laughs> listen i'm not exempt from that i have to check myself daily right <laughs> um Amen. with Word, certain man. things right yeah. but like how you feel about a person should never get in the way theoretically should never get in the way of like the progress that you say that you're inevitably about at the bottom line but I've seen too many folks of color cut their nose despite their face because they feel a certain way about a certain thing about other people or themselves. Right. But use power to the people as an excuse to not take care of their own mess. So how do we, and, and that, that happens within communities, right? People have problems with each other. Like it's true about the black community. It's true about the Filipino community. It's true about the Latino community. It's true about like all communities, but we can't really afford to have that service white supremacy and racism. And so, you know, like, how do we think about that as folks of color and across like, you know, ethnic lines as well, right? Like, so it's within your own ethnic group, but then how do you make sure your tribalism against other, you know, tribes, (laughs) other groups of ethnicities don't get in the way too of the grander vision of 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 upliftment and advancement that you profess
0: right how do you make
1: sure that that doesn't get in the way so that's my that's my rendering right now
0: yeah man that is the way i think brand i need to have you back at some point we can have an entire episode riffing on that or use the lp platform or some other platform we just call brandon and ron riffing because i think honestly when i think of like this episode like I usually usually come up with the title of this episode, as I've said in a couple of episodes, based on the rendering. And yet, we talked about so much, as much as your (laughs) rendering is so provocative, that doesn't feel right in my spirit as the title of this podcast, because we would need another 50 minutes to unpack that thing, because I think you and I have so much to say. And yet, my very oversimplified answer to your question is the way that you and I have lived, which we didn't ask for. But our mm. parents lay the groundwork for, despite yeah. the way that the, the community and system might have been built, is proximity. Yeah. To use the term that the brilliant Brian Stevenson often uses, I often mm. quote him in many a conversation and many of these rounderings podcast episodes, because when I reflect on the way that you've described your upbringing, and my own breaking, upbringing, Shanita's upbringing, and the people disproportionately, surprise, surprise, I've had on this podcast, there's this through line of, I think there's not one guest that I can think of who hasn't had this level of proximity across different identities. Yeah. Because it is really easy if you stay yeah. in a box to only see the box. That's right. I think by human nature, it's just like, I, I get into like my neuroscience brain, I get into understanding... What I understand of human behavior, find lived experience just from the sciences. And when we expose ourselves to deeper relationships with people who don't look like us, people whose identities are different than us, whose lived experience are different than us, it then comes back. Like, you know, I think what's so brilliant about this episode, Brandon, is like, you've come back home. This is like this full circle moment I'm sure you're feeling. I'm like, glad because like, I was worried re- about
1: starting off with the in-season tournament. <laughs> I'm glad no, I no, was no. able like, to bring it back home.
0: Yeah. No, I, but what, what's really cool about bringing it back home is like that's a literal like the investment in Rochester, going national, coming back home to and getting reinvested, gotcha. right? Yeah. But it's also, there's the home. You've come back to basketball, which is why we started with the IST. Like something that I think is so integral for any guest that I have a great conversation with is this idea of like where's is home home is telling our story. Yeah. Home is this podcast episode of being able to have a space to be able to talk about those things which we often don't talk about enough and I don't think our stories are amplified enough frankly, right? And yeah. so that for me is thrilled. Once again, that's an oversimplified answer. Having proximity doesn't automatically mean that you're going to all of a sudden become the social justice warrior and like fix all these things, right? And I would argue it gives you, like it has for you and I, a lot more of a self-awareness and understanding of how these things live across multiple communities, multiple identities, right? Because right I think yeah. without that, I think a pet peeve that I've often had, will continue to have, is I, I think this – I've always felt like a little bit of an outsider, believe it or not. In yeah. just about any community that I'm with. The only communities I feel like I'm not an outsider is when I bring my United Colors and Benetton groups together.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, so when uh, it's a bunch of yeah. all of us that are coming together on values, I feel I don't feel fully in any community that I'm with. And this is speak. I'll, I'll speak even the big ones. My Teach for America network, my New Leaders network, my EdLog network, none of that, like a Stuyvesant network. Because there's always a part of me that feels like something is not fitting here. I've had to construct where like i feel even more at home now in some of those homes do i feel more at home absolutely right but being around homogeneity just bothers me Mm. it just does yeah and yet there's certain homogeneous situations that probably a little bit more at home but like i just tend to not be at home and so when i think about like your statement is like the ethnic tribalism creating and maybe white supremacy and forming ethnic tribalism, but the ethnic tribalism, like feeding into white supremacy and racism, yeah. is if we had more bridges and relationships across communities. And like I think the work that you and I and many others on this podcast are trying to do is like break those lines. Sometimes one person at a time, but we have to do this in multiple spaces. Yeah. Because if we don't, we go uphill, man. Yeah. It just and that's just going uphill. It's hard. Yeah. And it's designed to make you want to quit.
1: Yeah. No, no. Thank so. you for saying those things. Cause that I, I, I've always felt, I was thinking about that last night, we, ran into, was tuning with my, one of my best friends. He's also from the wedge. My mm-hmm. wife actually asked me one time, like, what, what do you think you would have been like if you didn't grow up in the wedge? And I basically said something along the lines of like my best friends, like my brother's Mm. probably wouldn't be very like, you know, like super eclectic, like all over the place, like would wouldn't that. be like we're misfits that fit in into a lot of different places. Right. And and so like, yes, that's and, and you just described that. And I was thinking about that chilling with my, my boy uh, just yesterday and we were there in the wedge and that and just made me think about like how being there kind of set up like me being able to be a misfit that could fit into a lot of different places and he's the same way a lot I of us. I love are. that.
0: Yeah. That's the, that's the episode right there. That's yeah. that's the title. There it is. A misfit that fits in everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Brandon. Well, yeah. before I let you go, brother, what do you want to promote before we go? What things you're up to, your business, events or other yeah. things you got going on you want to share with the Ronderings fan?
1: Hey, listen, if you need curriculum reviewed Built <laughs> or, or policy, a uh, consulted about, uh, particularly regarding ELA and uh, literacy curricula. Hit me up, <laughs> uh, Maya Claude Teaching and Learning LLC. Email me at white at But I also run a really fun podcast called The LP Literature and Practice, where I get to edu- you know like interview and have conversations with authors of books that you know centered on education, with the primary goal of figuring out like how can we emphasize like great level engaging affirming and meaningful instruction through unbounded so that that's been cool and and, and great and yeah. that that's all i have for now and just for those listening like keep keep fighting your good fights whatever they are with you know honesty and and truth and hard work so
0: awesome brandon i uh, boy i i wish i could you know, I part of me is tempted to have us talk for another hour, but I got yeah, yeah, to stick to like, like, like yeah, my this, this Rondering. Like this, this has been a not a full extended remix episode, but this has gone longer. But like we had so much to talk about, there's so much yeah. vibe here that like yeah. I want to make sure we bring you back as a future guest sometime. the I would, I know, would
1: the, love the that. Ron, I love that
0: time for sure. But Ron fan, I always leave with this because one of my idols is Prime Time.
1: Yeah, As I tell
0: yeah, yeah. folks all the time, yo, these guests, we coming, we coming. Yeah. <laughs> so keep listening to Rod Keep sharing yeah, yeah. this because my goal is to amplify the voices of the many brilliant people that walk this earth who believe in things like social justice, who are great coaches and who are eclectic, who are misfits, who fit in, but don't fit in like Brandon I. So yes. peace out, y'all. Thanks again. Thank you, Brandon, for being on Ronderings. I'm sitting in space with one particular part about the many things we talked about in this episode, which is ethnic tribalism and how we talked about because of our experiences and proximity to diverse communities and identities, that it led to our own greater self-awareness and understanding, and how we've used that to break down barriers and promote social justice, and particularly within ethnic tribalism, that it can inadvertently serve white supremacy and hinder progress towards social change. So we have found that being able to be a bridge ourselves um, across communities is essential to combat ethnic tribalism and create the more inclusive society that we want. So thank you, Brandon, for that wisdom and Rondering's fam. We coming. Peace.